Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman, and I have with me Ryan and Jeanette from Blue Lake Capital. We are a private equity multifamily firm investing with high net worth and family offices. And today we have a very exciting show. Uh, we're going to talk about topics that are interesting to us, interesting uh, to our investors. And that's how we choose our topics. Uh, and we call it the trio. It's essentially, you know, myself, Ryan, Jeanette. Uh, and we're talking about things that are interesting um, and, uh, and, and kind of very relevant uh, today. So we're going to talk about gold, um, and this is something that I've been very, very curious about. We're going to talk about some stats, what's happening uh, with gold, and you know, a lot of our investors are also interested in that. Um, and then we're going to talk about the wealth disparity. Um, show some. We're going to show some very uh, interesting, um, you know, data um, of of you know who are the point one percent how much, you know, they're making, what's their net worth and how much is the bottom, you know, 10, 20%. It's, it's pretty amazing to see those numbers. We're going to go over that. Um, and also why it matters. Um, and then we're going to end up with family office report that, you know, Ryan is going to share with us. And it's important to know what family offices, the, the most uh, influential and the wealthiest families in the US, how are they allocating their money? How are they viewing risk? And, um, you know, it's always Im important and interesting to follow them for advice and for guidance. I know that that I, you know, do that personally. So all great topics. Let's get started. Let's get ready to scale. All right. Thank you for coming back. We have a very exciting um, episode today. Let's talk about gold. And, you know, we're a real estate firm. I'm personally very interested um, in gold. And I know that a lot of our investors are interested in that as well. And that's why also we, you know, chose to, to talk about this topic. Um, and there are many ways to buy gold. Uh, you can buy a gold bar and obviously it depends on the weight. Um, it's, it's being sold by, by uh, you know, the and the ounces, or you can buy gold futures, you can invest in a gold fund. Um, and uh, many investors are asking, you know, is it doesn't make sense to try and venture into gold and have a diversification, because that's by the end of the day, what we want, right? You know, we have investors that invest in real estate, um, some of them in VCs and startups, um, in the stock market, of course, um, almost everyone uh, I have such a small portion in the stock market. It's actually uh, pretty embarrassing. Um, but um, and, and gold is something that most investors have not invested in just yet. The interesting thing um, is that usually when interest rates are going down, price of gold is going up because gold is essentially it's kind of the anti-dollar, right? It's it's a, it's um, uh, an investment vehicle that serves as a hedge against uh, inflation. Um, and when real estate, when interest rates are going up, usually gold should go down. Um, but, you know, there's kind of a maybe a paradigm shift recently. What happened is that even though the feds, had, you know, they kept raising rates over and over, the gold is kind of holding steady um, and barely went down. Um, and so it's very interesting to see. And um and it's, you know, 
It's interesting you say that, Ellie, because I, that's the stat that I read is, you know, this time la this time during the great financial crisis, which is essentially is the highest point in, in which where most comparable to where rates are today. Um, and the price of gold is was half the price as it is today. So that that's where I, I bring it back to the office space. It's it's hard to value gold today. And, and a lot of investors are saying, OK, is there a recalibration? Is there a new base in, in which a gold standard, if you will, for for lack of a better term, because history doesn't always tend to repeat itself, but it does rhythm. So to your point, interest rates rise, gold doesn't produce yield. So a lot of investors start shifting over to the risk-free rate um, of a U.S. treasury, and and that devalues gold, but it just hasn't happened this time of year. And and I, I, I wish we actually recorded this at a jeweler's because I remember when I was picking out an engagement ring for my wife, um, the guy was educating me like I went to a, a, a wine bar and um, all the different with a sommelier talking about the different wines. He, he gave me a crash course and he knew everything there was to, to know about gold. And he was personally invested. And um, it, it's just it's just interesting because it, it's something that's not necessarily necessarily um, on the forefront. It's a commodity. It's, it's it's not a major investment vehicle, but yet a lot of investors are, are looking at it from an insurance perspective is, you know, th this is my way to hedge um, similar to cash and cash equivalents, which is is high in, in a portfolio in terms of diversification today. But it's 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 just interesting to to learn about these things, especially as it comes and in, in relates to the real estate sector. You know, reading, you know, I came across this article that I was reading about uh, you know, trends that are happening with it, including what you guys are talking about now and the wonky behaviors that we're identifying. And from what I understand, there's there's some interesting uh, factors at play that are adding to this, you know, peculiar behavior that we're seeing with the gold right now. And one of them is I read that a lot of regional banks are actually uh, basically rushing to actually get into gold buying. Uh, I think after everything that happened, you know, recently with kind of the banks getting a little uh, disrupted, this seems to be a strategy that they're putting in place to hedge against maybe some of these other, um, you know, uh, concerns that they have, you know, for the tailwinds that's going to come off of that. So I read about that. And then also apparently China has quite the role to play. Yeah. Oh, the that. Chinese. They, they, it, there's always something about the Chinese. And and I don't think I can, you know, visit China after saying that because the, the, they have <laughs> probably they're listening to everything, uh, you know, through all kinds of social media, um, you know, platforms. But uh, it's interesting because, yeah, the Chinese are actually betting against the U.S. economy. So they're buying more gold. Hence, the price of gold barely, you know, when the, it's it's almost flat, even though interest rates keep, you know, going up. Um, and it's interesting because with real estate, the Chinese were, you know, one of the largest buyers of, of multifamily and that really impacted pricing. And so we all knew that when we were bidding on an asset, if there's a Chinese, you know, family, um, uh, you know, company bidding, they did not care that much about, um, about cash flow the way that, that we did. So they always got, you know, they, 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 um, they were also responsible for raising, uh, you know, prices. And so now it's interesting to see um, that they're actually betting against, you know, the uh, the U.S. economy and um, and and buying gold. So I think I mean it's the first time I think since uh, at least since 1984 that gold is actually not going down significantly as interest rates are going up. 
Um, and it's interesting to see how, you know, ev everyone um, we're used to kind of see, okay, if, if interest rates see some sort of a relationship between interest rates and gold, and for the first time, it's not happening. And so a lot of investors are having a hard time understanding, okay, how, you know, what should I do? Should I buy it? Should I not? Because I, they, I, I knew how gold was supposed to behave. That's why I was betting on. That's what went into the pricing uh, and the val and the value of gold, but not anymore because it's not. It doesn't not behave the way that it used to, you know, throughout the history. So it's kind of it's another first. You know, we went through COVID. That was the first for many many people. For probably everyone who's you know who's listening or ever alive right now. Um, and and the way that the gold interacts with interest rates and the US economy, that's the, the first time it happens also. And so I think it's really interesting to see how foreign forces can really change um, you know, the, the status quo. Um, and and hopefully, you know, it's not it's not gonna last um for much longer because I do want to see the US economy recovering. The feds, I mean, they've been saying it all along. 2%, 2%, where we want to put, um, you know, uh, inflation back at 2%. It, it's, there's a lot of speculation. Are they going to stop raising? Are they going to cut back on interest rates? And right now, I mean, it doesn't, it, it looks like it's not going to end. It's just going to keep going on and on and on. At some point it will stop, but it's just interesting to see, um, you know, many kind of uh, strong forces that are shaping the economy right now from within the U.S. and and also from overseas. Very true. Well, you know, it's interesting that you're saying it that way, uh, because let's also talk about what the Fed is apparently responsible for, which is wealth disparity. Right. And you were you you touched on it when uh, when we you know rolled the the show opening, uh, but I find it very interesting, um, you know, and I might interest you peaked it, Ellie, because I have not seen this chart, so I want to know what's going on with this chart and what do you see? Yeah, let me share my screen, and if you're watching the video, um, you can uh, you can see the chart. That's the U.S. wealth disparity. And just so folks know, we have a YouTube channel. Yeah. Ready to sell Blue Lake Capital. And this is where you can find it. Yep. So let me know if you can see this chart. Yes. yes. All right. So this is a chart that the feds um, essentially, uh, that's a source of, of this. And, and we got it out of uh, wallstreet.com. So this is fascinating, and I'm going to talk more about the numbers just for those of you who uh, cannot, who aren't watching us or just listening. Essentially, there is a pretty steep chart all the way to the top. That's the top 0.1%. So these are about 130,000 uh, households in America with a net worth of um, slightly over 140 million. And I mean, obviously, I mean that's 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 the 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 top of of um you know society, obviously. So it's uh it's about a hundred and if to be exact, one hundred forty four point one million, um, since Q four of twenty twenty one, there this group's wealth actually dropped by three million dollars on average, which is really a wash if you compare it to one hundred forty four uh million dollars. And then the remaining top 1%, if you see it on my screen, all the way down 
um, with $21.2 million in net worth. And then you see the next uh, 9% underneath. It's kind of a, a, a nice uh, orange chart. That's about you know 4.7 million. The next 40%, it's a pretty large group um, with $807,000 in net worth. And the bottom 50%, $56,000. That's all. And I think most of those, uh, this wealth is probably in, you know, people's, you know, main residence, you know, in their houses and their homes. Um, that's the equity that they've accumulated over the years. And so just to look at it, and it's, it's a, a pretty phenomenal chart just to look at it and to understand the, the gap between the top, you know, the, the 0.1%, even, even to the second group, which is the top 1%, just imagine the, the huge delta between $144 million and a $21 million. And so yeah. times, Ellie. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's it's crazy to think about it. And this really puts it into perspective because there, there was always maybe, maybe it was just a misconception on my end, but I always thought when you talk about wealth, everybody talks about the 1%, right? The 1%. But the, the disparity between the 1% and the 0.1% is massive. It's larger than even the one percent against the fifth, the lower fifty percent. And and what it comes down to is, to your point, one hundred and thirty thousand households is that top point one percent. With that, that's seven times more wealth than the top one percent of your point of twenty one million. So that that's just a massive number. But then the, you're talking about a small subset of the population, right? So as we talk about the true, when you think of the disparity, it, it's really talking about the larger proportion of the economy, which makes up that that what they call is bottom 50%. Like you just said, there's a 0.1, there's a 1%, there's a 1% to 9%, 10% to 40%. And then that bottom 50% is truly where things differ because the top 10% holds 56% of total wealth or, or net worth. So that's where there, there's a true disparity. And when you mentioned um, the, the equity, so this is where I, I took this chart and a few things a little bit further and said, well, I, I wanted to look at the, the wealth accumulation from 2020 into 2023, knowing the stocks and bonds and, and that market really supported the top, really anybody who's got any type of investment vehicle. But what benefited the most was the bottom 50%. And the reason I say that on a percentage basis of net worth from 2020 to 2023, the bottom 50% net worth grew 75% in, in aggregate on a percentage basis, which the, is the largest among all of those, those categories. And then I started to dig in a little bit further and understand, well, why is that? Well, it's because the housing market, the bottom 50%, most of their assets, in fact, the, the number is fifty more than 50% of their net worth is in their primary residence. So that is truly why they saw such an increase in their, their total net worth over the last three years because home prices. And then not only that, I'm going to take it one step further, because again, this is I, I had once you showed me the chart and the, there's obviously other data that goes behind the scenes that I had access to, which is dangerous for, for anybody. Um, but what I found is, you know, the, the more wealth you, you accumulate, the lower percentage of real estate is your your net worth because you start all doing alternative investments. You start gaining a, a different portfolio, whereas in the bottom 50%, yes, 54% of your wealth is in real estate in terms of your total assets. But when you start looking at your liabilities is where things get really concerning because 45% 
of total liabilities for that bottom 50% of the population is, is 45% of their total liability is consumer debt. So, so it, it, it continuously digs a hole because rising interest rates makes it unaffordable for people to buy a home. Um, now that student loans and credit card debt is at all time highs and, and represents trillions of dollars, it, it's hard to get out of that hole. So it's, it's creating a wider gap from that bottom 50% to any other category that we just discussed. And it's, it, it's truly in, in, intriguing, but also concerning. Yeah, and you know, I'm wondering, are tenants, where are they in that chart? So obviously, you know, our tenants are not going to be the top 0.1 or the top 1%. Um, but I'm assuming that most of them don't have any or very little net worth because usually, like you said, most of the net worth is in, in real estate, meaning it's mostly the house you bought 20 years ago at $120,000. You paid some of or all of the um, you know mortgage and now the house appreciated and it's worth, you know, 200 or, you know, whatever that is, 180,000. And that's where your well, you know, your net worth is. And if you have that, you're not you're not our tenant. You have your own house. You don't rent an apartment. So it's interesting, you know, to think about. Um, I'm, I'm actually really curious to know where where our tenants, um, you know, based. And sometimes there's some states where you can actually get information on um, on the income uh, before you buy the asset. And sometimes you can only get it after you complete. The purchase because it's um you know information some sometimes that you you don't fully have um or at least not when you're touring when when we're touring and we're asking hey what's the average household income here you don't always get an answer because uh but but that that's really interesting to know I, you know i think when it comes you to probably, wealth disparity I, I have yeah. to, wait i have to say though that i actually yeah. i disagree with you a little bit on that because you don't always necessarily know so um, here's maybe a, a interesting, a fun fact, you know, about me, I have never wanted to own a home. And the reason I have never wanted to own a home, well, there's several reasons, but main, one of the main reasons was one, I just really did not want to be liable for all of the things that come with home, home ownership. You know, for many, many years, I've been a, a single mom. And the last thing I wanted to deal with was one more problem that I was responsible for. I had greater peace of mind being a renter than wanting to be a homeowner. And while, you know, that may be counterintuitive, the reality is, is there's a lot of people that are eligible to buy homes and capable of buying homes. They don't want to. There's also... Yeah. And, and also, if you think, you know, also about like um, a lot of IT professionals and even medical professionals, like traveling nurses, you know, things along those lines there, it doesn't make a lot of sense to buy a place. If you never know where you're going to really live for the next two or three years. Yeah, you know, you and yeah. And, you know, I was reading an article just recently that was talking about the increasing number of people that are single nowadays. It's a higher percentage. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it, it's a higher percentage than it's been historically for a long time. And we're talking people in their, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s. So these are professionals and likely, you know, I mean, I'm sure that some of them are probably blue collar, but probably a lot of them are white collar. So I just think it's interesting because, you know, we get an idea of, of what we think the tenant base is going to be. But the reality is, is there's still high income earners out there that necessarily don't want to own a home. They just don't. And they yeah. want to keep renting. 
Yeah, renter, there's two classes of renters, renters by choice and renters by necessity. We always want the renters by choice, but many times uh, they go to the nice class A buildings. We want to have a few of them, but also um, renters by uh, necessity that are still making enough money and they're good. And I call them boring tenants because there's, <laughs> I like the tenants that don't have, we don't have any drama. You pay on time, you pay every time and you don't skip in the middle of the night. Uh, we don't have, you know, uh, a lot of those, but uh, every property has those that skip, you know, I never even thought of skipping without paying rent as an as as a, a valid you know option. It's like when I walk into the grocery store, like leaving without paying or or sitting at the restaurant and just walking away and not paying. It's not even in a, in a realm of, of possibilities. And then um, mainly when we bought you know um, some assets early on, uh, I'm talking about 2019. Um, a little bit in 2020, it's, it was actually, it was surprising for me, uh, just the tenants that we've, and we don't, and that, that's maybe a, a different podcast for like real estate horrors, horror stories of tenants <laughs> of, in the middle of the night with, uh, you know, uh, with, um, uh, if they could have taken the backsplashes, they would have, but they, they skipped, um, with some appliances. And not only we had to write off some of the rents, but also, uh, you know, buy a new fridge. Imagine that escaped with the fridge. And it's not a small thing to carry with you. Um, the asset yeah. was, was a, a great, it was a great, you know, exit, but it's, I definitely have a few more, uh, you know, white, uh, you know, hair to, um, you know, to cover. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, what's really interesting about the, the wealth disparity is that I know that there's some um, wealthy families that they're concerned that at some point when people are desperate, they have nothing to lose. And they're concerned from some instability in the societal order in the U.S. and they see the bigger picture. And so they feel obligated um, to help with, you know, by donating to a lot of, um, you know, charities to make sure that some people, you know, keep them afloat. But uh, it's definitely something that is concerning to them because we're talking about people, you know, the way to accumulate wealth, you don't just stumble on it unless you inherited, you know, some wealth, but then it means that your parents or your grandparents did the work. We're talking about people who are hardworking and educated. They consume information all the time. This is the one thing that is, um, that I find most, common with the wealthiest people um, that I've met. So for instance, something a bit personal, you know, my uh, father-in-law, he is spending hours every day educating himself. He sits after dinner in, uh, and Mark, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry that I'm exposing you this way, but he sits after uh, dinner <laughs> and he listens um, to investment shows and he is reading, um, you know, whatever he can about uh, you know, investing, he's educating himself. And I don't know how he can find time between, you know, uh, running, you know, a company and, and doing that. But the, those people that accumulated wealth, they are constantly reading if it's history, investment, you know, but the economy, and they see some patterns. And I've been hearing from them that they're very concerned about the wealth disparity. I personally think that education is the key. 
but there's I don't even want to start talking about education because it's it's a whole it's it's a, a monster of a topic and we're probably going to need a few months to cover you know everything all, all the angles there um, but it's it's concerning it's definitely concerning to see that huge you know gap yeah. And so, you know, it's interesting also because, um, you know, the the auto uh, worker strikes have been going on, you know, just the last, you know, couple of weeks here. And, you know, I understand the union's demands and requests and the negotiations that they're trying to get. I understand that these are people that want to have a better income. But it was interesting because I was also listening to a podcast that was talking about uh, from the business aspect and the challenges for the business some of the things that they're asking for would eat into profit margins that cannot necessarily be sustainable. And so, you know, while they're advocating for, you know, these gigantic increases in pay, which I empathize with and I understand, I think that the problem is sometimes those that are not educated, particularly when it comes to businesses and how businesses operate and how they make profit and, and how, you know, the financials work on the business level don't realize the depth of their ask and don't realize that by what they're demanding, they could actually uh, essentially, you know, cause the business to go under because long-term that's not necessarily sustainable. So, you know, I think that, I think when you look at the wealth gap and, and, and the wealth disparity, I think, you know, I think one of the key things that people can do in order to try to address that is understand and take accountability for creating your own opportunities. Uh, I think that's, you know, also a way out. I, I definitely believe in education, but I believe in addition to that, it's it's being hungry for opportunity and creating opportunities. I mean, Ellie, you're actually a perfect example of coming here and starting Blue Lake. You know, if you want to revolutionize yourself, you have to take some extraordinary measures to do so. It's just yeah. true. You absolutely do. It's interesting that you brought up that topic too, the UAW, because it really does tie to the wealth disparity because a lot of people are looking at the news articles and everything being posted to say, well, look what the CEOs of these companies are making. But when you think about it, that's all getting trickled down. They have fiduciary responsibilities as a company to their investors, your everyday person that has stocks and, and ownership in these, these these three major conglomerates. And what one thing you really got to realize as well is every day that they're not working in, in, in delivering vehicles, Parts are on back order. So the consumer is going to end up being impacted. And not only that, who's going to pay to your point? You still have to, to generate year over year profit in, in earnings for your shareholders. And how do you do that? You're going to have to increase price. If you're going to see your labor go up by 40%, give or take, well, guess what? When you go to buy a car as a consumer, you're bearing that cost, not the companies. They'll find a way. Then you see middle level layer, uh, middle level management getting getting let go, and it, it truly does have a trickle effect. But to your point, if you look at it and say it's it's a, a wealth disparity issue, and we deserve, I mean, the union workers, we deserve more because we're doing the work and you're getting the benefits. Your compensation's four thousand times of mine, but in, in reality, it's much more than that. There's a, there's a greater implication at hand. Yep, absolutely. All right. Um, before we move to our last uh, topic, which is my favorite today, uh, but you know, family offices, what they investing in, how they, uh, what what's their view of the economy? We're just gonna take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Ready to Scale is brought to you by Blue Lake Capital, where we hunt down the best multifamily investment opportunities that we can find and invite investors to join in with us. We target Class B value-add multifamily properties across the Sunbelt. Our CEO, Ellie Perlman, invests a substantial amount of capital into every deal. 
This means our interests are aligned with yours. If you're an accredited investor looking to expand your portfolio and diversify sponsors, be sure to visit us at bluelake-capital.com. Blue Lake Capital, be bold, be extraordinary, and keep moving forward. Hi, we are back. So the last topic for today is uh, family offices, and we're going to talk about um, and analyze what they're doing, what they're allocating uh, in terms of investments and, and what excites them and, and what, what does not excite them today. And again, it's really important to understand what they're doing because these are the, the wealthiest families in the U.S. And so it's always very interesting to learn what others have done with their money so you can maybe you know think about implementing and again i mean we are not investment advisors uh you always need to consult with your you know cpa investment advisor because every opportunity every investment bears risk this is just you know our um you know point of view from what we're reading what we understanding the the conversations we have with investors and what we're doing with you know our own money sometimes so just you know keep that in mind yeah, Ellie, I've spent a lot of time in the family office space. And when I say family office space, not, not in terms of being on that side of the equation, but a lot of research and a lot of the 2023 um, family office reports that are published by RBS, uh, Goldman Sachs, and, and Blackstone, and, and some of the, the largest institutions that um, are, are technically fund managers for a lot of these family offices. You know, And I even went back and looked at the 2022 reports just because I started to educate myself further. And I want to understand not only how are they allocating their portfolios today, but how has that changed from last year, given the, the macroeconomic conditions that are rapidly changing and the conversations we have with our equity partners all the time. I mean, these family offices are very selective people or groups, I should say, in firms. And, and they're 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 very sophisticated with, with their allocation and their portfolio diversification. So some of the few, I guess I'll list off some of the takeaways that I absorb from a, a, a conjunction of all of these reports is the portfolio allocation really hasn't changed in the last two years, nor is, ex is, it, is it expected to shift over the next two. Um, and what I mean by that is that the asset classes and the investment vehicles that they've, they've diversified in and, and been successful in over the years, they only anticipate expanding those, but not drastically shifting their portfolio from, say, one asset class or one investment vehicle to another. Um, and the top three concerns from these family office hasn't shifted either. So they've kind of changed orders, whereas in, in 2022, inflation was the number one concern for family offices. Now it's a recession and geopolitical concerns, um, given the, the uncertainty and the volatility between um, diff different regions. And then you know, another thing I noticed is that family offices tend to invest in the investment vehicle that that delivered their wealth, meaning 90% of family offices that were became wealthy through real estate invest in real estate. So they they it's what they know. It's it's their their blood. And I'm sure you guys can relate to that. And not only that, but a, a very interesting shift is the diversification and sophistication from these family offices, not only on the single single family office side, but on the multifamily office side, is that their resources are, are becoming more efficient and more effective. So they're doing a lot more in-house that they have the resources, the due diligence and the education and, and team that they're they're doing more direct investments relative to through fund managers, which is really interesting. And, and what, what hits home to us specifically on the real estate side is 54% of family offices 
plan to invest directly, um, which is the highest among all alternative investment vehicles that that they see because they're familiar. They they they've had access to the the um, the industry and they have the resources and, and due diligence capabilities to do it themselves. So instead of say co GPs. Um, or I mean, excuse me, instead of a, a limited partnership, they want co-GPs, JVs, they want to get involved. They want a little bit more control, which is really interesting. Um, so that that's kind of some of the, the major takeaways. And there, there's other statistics which we can talk about momentarily, but um, just wanted to open up and kind of give a, a high level of, of major topics that that I've, I've read over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is that I can say that there are probably two types of family offices. One is a family office that wants to be, you know, an NLP, meaning they want to write a check, they want to get some returns, and they're not really interested in being involved in the operations. Um, and we're working with those family offices, of course. The other type is those that want to be more involved um, and they as as a form of a JV partnership, for instance, um, or co-GP, which means that they're not going to sign your PPM. They're going to sit next to you in the org chart. Um, so if you own 50% of the asset, they own the other 50% uh, versus, you know, you own, when I say you, I mean the uh, entity um, that holds the asset owns 100%. And then let's say you own as a sponsor, 30% investors own 70%. And in that 70% entity, some family offices sit. Um, the second group that wants to be a JV partner or co-GP, they essentially, they find us, they're much more active because they're not very, you know, um, passive. So they're active in a sense that um, they're look, they're reaching out to us. Um, they want to meet with us, talk with us, and, you know, try and find a way to work together. The first group is not going to conferences. They're not reaching out to you. You need to kind of, you know, find your way to them. And I have to tell you, I'm the worst saleswoman. I don't like to sell. I don't like to push, you know, and say, Hey, come invest with me. It doesn't feel natural to me. And I actually, and I don't like it. Um, so the best, you know, relationships are actually, um, you know, when are, are being built when you meet, you know, family offices and conferences. And when you naturally being, you know, it's part of your natural circle. I think these are more likely to, um, you know, to actually turn into a, a pretty decent and fruitful, um, you know, efforts and relationships. Um, but it's really interesting, like what you said, Ryan, that some of them, yes, they want to be on the co-GP side. They want to take a more of an active part. They're not very interested in managing the assets many times, um, but they want, usually it comes with a much bigger check size. So co-GP, they can put 10, 20, $25 million. Of course, there's the third Part, you know, that like you mentioned, Ryan, those who actually buy real estate directly, but that means that they have the, the team members that we have at Blue Lake, they have. So they have asset managers, they have um, uh, they have their own portfolio managers and they have, you know, underwriters. And so an entire team in-house that they keep in order to underwrite and uh, and manage those assets. So interesting to see that. The wealthiest families in the U.S. are actually investing, still investing in real estate. Uh, I think 
multifamily is one of the favorite. I know that some of them are involved in hotels as well. Um, some retail. Um, I don't think anyone is touching office right now. I would say, uh, and I said it before, if I had, you know, uh, a few hundreds of millions of dollars to play with, I would probably buy office space in, uh, in, in SF. I think it will come back. It's just going to take a few really, I think it's, it's a three to four really bad years for the office space. Um, but you know, if you can buy an office at 50, at 50 cents on the dollar, I think, and you're okay with having negative leverage for, you know, a, a few, several years. And I think it will pay off big time. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious, so you know, what, what your yeah view on this topic is. Well, specifically on the office space. So like when, when, when you talk about, um, when I think about family offices, it, it's really about preservation of capital and, and generational wealth, right? Passing it on to the next generation. So the office space, what I found in the family family office reports is that um, almost 33%, so one, one out of every three family offices plan to decrease their exposure to office. But good thing on our end is that 30% of family offices expect to increase their residential or multifamily exposure in, in the real estate space. So we're positioned extremely well from that perspective. You know, what I find really um, interesting, and neither one of you have actually touched on it yet, is talk about wealth disparity from a family office scale. So in the report, it said that 72% of family offices have a net worth over 1 billion. So 72% over 1 billion, the B. And, and then the top 8% has a net worth over 10 billion. You wanna talk about the Delta between 1 billion and 10 billion, that's huge. So, you know, it's interesting that, you know, everybody can always look to someone else and be like, man, I want to do what that guy's doing, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, many second generation family offices are not interested many times in running the entire business. They want to be involved in, in philanthropy and traveling and, and doing other things. So I don't know if they're necessarily looking at the, you know, 72% or uh, the um 18% and say, I want to be them. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah, they, they have the money, though. I'll tell you that. That's one thing is, you know, the the cash and what, what they define as cash equivalent. So highly liquid um, assets are, are much higher than historical levels. And we've known that. Right. But there's been dry powder. There, there's there's capital on the sidelines just waiting to be deployed. And um, it, it accounts for about 12 percent of all family offices, cash and cash equivalents, which is a massive number. And 35 percent of these family offices are expecting to deploy that capital in the next 12 months. A lot, it's going to be exactly in the private sector. It's, it's going to be all over the place, but th there's going to be continued emphasis in allocation to the developed markets. 41% of family offices expect to um, increase their exposure to the U.S. And, and a lot of that's coming into the real estate sector. It's coming in healthcare, technology, and, and because they've been proven through different economic cycles. And, and what's really interesting is the private credit market, which is a very small portion of family office portfolios, is expected to increase 30% over the next 12 months because as lenders start, banks start tightening and, and lenders 
um, start pull back, pulling back on lending, family offices can step in because they, there's got to be somebody to take their place. So they, they can't compete with the big banks in, in historical terms when, when everybody's being competitive. But when there's no liquidity in the market, it provides an opportunity for them. So it's, it, it's going to be interesting to see how they allocate. But like I said, that's the only real change in the reports that I did read is um, really, really maintain status quo, watch out for a recession, inflation, and um, the, the keep an eye out on the geopolitics. But um, other than that, it's it, it was just very interesting, to say the least. Hey, out of curiosity, Ryan, how did it happen to touch on how many of them are investing in gold? No, that is well, <laughs> honestly, it might have in a, a small subset in the commodity section, but I, I kind of breezed over that one. I was more focused on the the alternative investment space, the allocation, but it wasn't. Uh, it, it wasn't, it's not like it had its own section in gold, but I knew you were going to ask that, Jeanette. <laughs> Just curious. All right, guys. Well, great episode um, and, you know, great topics. If you um, have some ideas for, you know, interesting topics that you want us to cover, let us know. Um, info at the lake-capital.com. Uh, if you want to talk with us about investing, um, you can reach out to us the same email or you can go to our website, bluelake-capital.com and you can fill out the investor form. And with that, uh, you know, we're going to end today's conversation. going to wrap it up. And um, Jeanette, Ryan, it's uh, 5.15 on a Thursday. Uh, so not not too late we, we can still you know uh you know achieve some more uh kind of uh, check the box on some more you know a, a few more items before the the day ends but thank you so much for joining me it's been a pleasure uh and you know i can't wait to record the next uh, the next one with you so uh and for you the listeners uh thank you so much for staying with us uh, until now i hope that that was informative fun engaging um if you enjoy listening to us do me a favor, go to iTunes, give us uh, some love, show us some love, review, uh, send us a, a positive review, uh, give us, uh, you know, hit the uh, five-star rating. Uh, that would be much, much appreciated. Thank you, everyone. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.